0: Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. I first got to know Shalini Mitani a number of years ago when she headed up community business, an NGO still going strong that was the first of its kind in Asia, encouraging diversity and inclusion in Hong Kong's companies and beyond. Shalini Mitani MBE is the granddaughter of George Haralila on her mother's side. In 2009, she was honored by the World Economic Forum as a young global leader. She talks to me about being a Hong Kong girl, how her husband, Ravi Gudamal, inspired her, community business, the tragedy of her young son, Zubin, dying, and the foundation that is in his name.
1: My name is Shalani Mitani. I was born and raised in Hong Kong in 1972. My mum, Mira Harilila, who later became Mira Mitani, was born in Hong Kong. And my father, Ramesh Mitani, was born in Hyderabad, Zind, and came here as a young boy. And actually, my parents, for their generation, what was really unique was they fell in love and they were caught at the back of a car. And the big issue at that time was that he was a Hong Kong boy, and she was a Kowloon girl. And the Hong Kong Kowloon divide was was enormous. And um, when we think about that today, it's it's really quite funny.
0: So um, you're in fact the granddaughter of George Harry Leila. So that was the
1: older brother of Harry Harry Leila. Right. So my grandfather George Harry Leila had seven children, and his oldest child is Mira, and Mira is my mum. So George Harry Leila. Often we think of Harry as the oldest brother. Harry is the second brother of the Harry Leela first generation in Hong Kong, or actually I should really say second generation because it was their parents who brought them here. So my granddad, George Harry Leela, and Harry Harry Leela, uh, Peter Harry Leela, came here as young boys with their mum and dad. So yes, I am, I suppose, one of the older grandchildren of the Harry Leela family. But being a girl and being a boy is very different. And being a child, of a daughter is also very different because I don't carry the name. So in our tradition, which I've got to admit I, I think is, is wrong, the name goes through the boy and traditionally everything in terms of benefit and how you are viewed all goes through the boy. So the general feeling is, for example, my mom as the first Harry Leela born of her generation she would be married and she would go into another family And so she would no longer be a Harry Leela. You lose your identity as a woman. You don't gain an identity. You lose an identity and then you take on another one. And you'd say that's still current today? Absolutely, so I would be one of the only Cindy girls I know, girls of Cindy origin in Hong Kong that I know who have retained their surname, their maiden surname. And initially that was frowned upon, but it is what it is. And I think it's, it's, I think it's a big ask to, to change your name anyway, but I think it's a big ask if families that come from very conservative cultures choose to bring up their children in more liberal cultures and then expect their children to adopt the kind of more conservative values. So yes, it, it's very interesting. I do think the Cindy... Family structure, um, like I said, is very patriarchal. I married a man who was very liberal. We fell in love, and his family has also been in Hong Kong a very long time. In fact, his father grew up in Shanghai and had been out of India a generation longer than my family. And his mum was a working woman and educated, went to university. Whereas for me, Born in nineteen seventy-two, I went to university in nineteen ninety and both from the Harry Leela side, which is my maternal side, and the Matani side, which is my paternal side, it was a very big thing and something I fought for many years to to get. That's interesting
0: because I've known you as the the founder of uh, community business so it's all about diversity and inclusion you've got an MBE for your work for the Hong Kong community you've now got the Zubin Foundation and so I didn't realize the actual personal side of that I thought perhaps uh, you know you were already
1: ahead but I suppose you had to fight all of those battles yourself I only realized at 13 so until the age of 13 I think growing up in an ESF school there was massive amounts of discrimination in my day I think being a brown child, I was definitely treated differently. I remember in um, form three, as it was called, my history teacher once said to me, we were talking about aspirations and I said, I'm going to be prime minister of India. And he laughed and he said, no, Cindy girls just get married. And he put me right in my place. And I had a teacher at the ESF again at age 13, called Mrs. Baskin. And she had a massive impact on me because She put terminology in my head like racism, chauvinism, feminism, equality. And those words, for the first time, I realized what I had seen in my life was wrong. And that there were words that described them. I went to a school which was predominantly white, or I went to schools that were predominantly white. There was diversity, but there was no inclusion. And so all that was celebrated was the whiteness and the white englishness and even my friends who were eurasian the chinese side so what in eurasian by that i meant the english and the chinese the chinese side was played down it was almost an embarrassed part of their background uh, it's different today and i'm so grateful it is it is different so i think i had encountered that that sort of racism At school and at home there was definitely a patriarchal society like I said. The expectation was that as a woman my only role was to get married. I wasn't to speak up too much, I wasn't to speak up at the dinner table, I wasn't to argue. The reason why I wasn't allowed to go to university was because it would make me more argumentative than I already was and then which sensible Cindy man would ever marry me. So I guess I grew up seeing racism and seeing, seeing chauvinism, and I knew they were wrong. And I fought hard, like I said, to go to university. And I do believe education allows people to escape many things, including not tradition, because I think tradition can be a really good thing, but tradition which perhaps is outdated and... When we're more educated, I'd like to think we see the world differently. My parents changed and the families have changed and girls after me went to university without the struggle. But yes, I I did fight for it and I did delay marriage. There was always pressure to get married. It's always an underlying, still today for my cousins, it's an underlying. So how old were you when you got married? I was seen as very late an old maid and I was 28 years old. And um, I remember many of my aunts pointing to me in absolute distaste and saying, if our daughters turn out like you, we're going to be completely livid. But of course, many of my female cousins are single and the world has changed, thankfully. Describe your wedding. Oh gosh. So I married Ravi Gidamol, who uh, was a wonderful man. And we decided that we were not going to accept any wedding gifts. I feel very privileged about many things, and I realized that people were going to give me rubbish anyway. Another toaster, or another whatever that I don't need. And so we decided to put on our wedding card, and I believe that was the first of its time that we would be raising money for children in India. And we thought we would, we would set up a classroom in an existing school It turns out because of our request, you know, that we wouldn't accept presents and we told people where the um, proceeds would be going, that we raised half a million and we ended up building a school in Madras, (laughs) um, which was fabulous. I mean, it's actually a really good business model just to keep getting married. So our wedding, I was not going to negotiate on the wedding day itself, where I said it must be a limited crowd. So it was both our families and our really close friends, and that was 300 people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, was it in Hong Kong or it India? Was, it was in Hong Kong. Oh, we're Hong Kong people. Ravi speaks perfect Cantonese. My Cantonese is much more mumate, ma right? But we're Hong Kong people. Uh, our families are all here. But at the reception, which we left to our mothers, completely left to our mothers. Yes, I know you're looking at me. There were over a thousand people. Wow! Exactly. And so where was that held here in Hong Kong? So at that time um, there weren't many places that could accommodate that number. Wedding itself was held at the Hindu temple in Happy Valley and uh, I reformed that so much making it much more gender biased. I mean not so gender biased, so more equal and the actual reception was held at the Aberdeen Marina Club and we took our parents took a whole floor which and just completely transformed it and it was beautiful it was really beautiful and then my granddad george harry leela had a sit-down dinner for me um, at the holiday inn and that was very special i was extraordinarily close to him and i think that one of the great benefits of being george harry leela's oldest granddaughter and the second oldest grandchild was i had a lot of time with him and he always said to me. don't really care about all this education you have and all the awards for me what's important is what you leave behind and what you leave behind is love and the impact you make on people's lives so the only expectation he really had for me or i think all his grandchildren was to be good people and to serve the hong kong community well you certainly have done that and you continue to do that what was your degree in oh i'd have a degree from the London school of economics which is a Bachelor of Science in Economics and Accounts and Finance. And I started my career as an accountant in a British accountancy firm, which showed me at that time that racism is rife in the professional sector. And then I went into banking.
0: It was interesting reading up also on your husband Ravi that uh, he had the racism that he had encountered taxi drivers that didn't pick him up I was a bit stunned I don't know why I was stunned but I was that uh, in the sense that uh, you know racism is alive and well in Hong Kong uh, particularly for people with darker skin but do you think that there's that, that
1: is changing that there's more awareness and education so I think Ravi encountering racism post secondary school, coming back to Hong Kong. So he went to Island school and then went away to America, to Boston, did his degree and came back. And I think his eyes really opened to racism when he came back at 21, 22. And it was appalling for him. There's one incident. They were walking into a bar in Kwai Fong, Graffiti, which used to be in this area. And all his white friends walked in and he got sidetracked and he saw some other friends... And after he'd said hello to these other friends who were Indian, he walked into graffiti and they said, sorry you can't go in and there's a private party. And he said, what nonsense, my friends have just walked in and there's no private party. And they said, no sir, there's a private party. And he said, he then realized that they were being racist and they weren't letting in the brown-skinned people. It went on to him doing many things including fighting for the rights of Hong Kong's ethnic minorities who were going to become stateless post-97. And it's because of Ravi that tens of thousands of Hong Kong brown-skinned people now have the right of abode in Great Britain. Now, I can't claim any credit for this. I wasn't going out with him at the time. I met him in 97, after we got a British citizenship. But as I watched him from afar, he was the atypical Indian man for me. He was willing to go, go all out, not for A business interest or vested interest but to help the community and that had come to him because he had studied the law and he had realized that Hong Kong ethnic minorities were going to be stateless so it's funny watching him from far I fell in love with this man that he was so different to anything I had seen and he also happened to be Cindy which actually was irrelevant to me my parents were extremely happy of course and so were my grandparents
0: I mean, you had quite a financial career for a number of years. And then
1: you created community business. You know, community business was a very important part of my life. I walked away from banking. And actually, it was a a very big decision for me because in Hong Kong, I think one sees their own value, sadly, by how much they earn. And you go from earning well to earning nothing. And particularly in my case, I had studied really hard, and I'd fought so hard to be educated, to be dependent, And here I was saying, oh, I'm not going to earn any money. I'm going to put the needs of others before mine. So I set up community business because I understood how companies worked, but I also understood how flawed they are, particularly around engaging their workforce on these issues and dealing with these issues. So community business is a not-for-profit in Hong Kong. It works with the largest companies in the world. It was the first of its kind in Asia And it works with companies around diversity and inclusion. So it works on women at the top. It works on LGBTQ, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer agenda for companies. It works on disability at work. And it works on these issues because it's imperative that businesses do this. People come in all shapes, all sizes. And if a company wants the best people, they've got to be inclusive to how they look, How they might speak and how they might dress and what they eat and if we're not inclusive and if companies aren't inclusive in Asia we're not going to get the best talent and it really is as simple as that.
0: And of course with ethnic minorities here in Hong Kong you'll have some that have been here for any number of generations like yours and then you'll have people who've come in say in the last 20 or even 10 years from Pakistan Bangladesh more recently. Now in terms of education of course It it goes right down to kindergarten in terms of Chinese education where people are already stymied at the outset.
1: Yes, so the ethnic minority community of Hong Kong is very varied and often we try and homogenise. And it's wrong, it's unfair, but it doesn't reflect what the community is. Like in any community, there are those who have and those who don't have. Like any community, there are those who access public services more than those who access private services. Now, in the case of my family, yes, my family came in 1911, but my family on both sides encountered economic hardship when they came. So my grandfather, George Harry Leela, his family came in 1911. My mum went to KG5. My father went to Raimondi, a Catholic local school. We went to international schools. If you look at it today, Hong Kong's ethnic minority, if I exclude the foreign domestic helpers, account for about 5% of the population of Hong Kong. It is the fastest growing population in Hong Kong. And this is important because at a time when 95% of the population isn't having babies, doesn't want to have babies and we have a declining birth rate, the ethnic minority community is growing very fast. Now when we break down the ethnic minority community, you have the whites at the top, in terms of the biggest number, but they're often excluded because they are white and they receive preferential treatment, by and large. By and large, they're the richest if you look at the income data, and they're the most well-educated. Quickly behind them, we have the Indians. That community has also got a very high median income, much higher than the average of Hong Kong. However, within the Indian community, you have some of the poorest in Hong Kong, generally the Sikh community. Then you have, in terms of size, they're whites, Indians, and then you have the Pakistanis. Now the Pakistani community is a critical community for Hong Kong for historic reasons. They also have a very unique culture and religion, but also and predominantly because they tend to have between four to six children. Now the Pakistani community, according to government data, is the poorest community in Hong Kong. So when you talk about schooling and you talk about language, it applies mostly to our Sikh community. It applies to our Pakistani community and it applies to the next biggest ethnic minority community, the Nepalese community. And then there are small ethnic minority communities, the Indonesians and the Filipinos. But when you look at what has happened in education, there has been a massive shift post-97. Pre-97, government schools taught in English, for the most part. Post-97, there was new policy that resulted in schools going to the Cantonese medium of instruction. So the children who were educated pre-97, some of them had fabulous education. We saw them in government, we saw them in top industry. Post-97, they were going into schools where they were being taught Cantonese. And what we've seen is a generation now that went to school in 97, 98, thereafter, who went to CMI schools, Cantonese medium of instruction schools, but mostly went to EMI schools, which are English medium of instruction schools. And they are now on construction sites. We never had that community before. And it's because that community speaks perfect Cantonese, but they don't read and write Chinese, which means they don't access jobs and tertiary education. In order to get to university, you need a very good Chinese grade. But if you're going to an English medium of instruction government school, your Cantonese competency, your Chinese written and reading is the equivalent of a primary two child, even though you're 18 years old. And so you can't expect to access university Vocational training or good jobs. So, we've had this whole lower income community that's been bred, I want to say, mostly post 97 as a result of education policy. I really believe Carrie Lam is seeing the problem. And there is recognition today that this community is actually not a Pakistani community first, it's a Hong Kong community first. I think we're really pushing at the government, understanding that these are Hong Kong people. Children should be given every opportunity to excel in Hong Kong like their Chinese counterparts. And to excel doesn't mean equality, it means equity. Because a Chinese person who speaks Chinese at home and can have help in reading and writing does not need as much support is someone who doesn't have come from that background. Well, we need to put in interventions to help that person in an Indian community, in a Pakistani community, in a Nepalese community, because they don't have that Cantonese background. They are going to need support in order to get to the same level. So there is a recognition that things have gone wrong. I think that parents too need to come some way on this journey I think, post-97, there were lots of minority families that said, oh, our, our kids cannot learn Chinese, it is way too hard. And it is a very hard language to learn. You know, they must be at the mosque every day, or at the Sikh Gurdwara every night, or whatever. And that's very important from a cultural perspective. But if we want these children to succeed, they need Cantonese. And the only way to learn Chinese, sadly, is to be putting in hours. I think partly parents said we would we can't take away the culture of our children. They need to be spending time in the in the mosque and the gurdwara uh, doing other things. I think it was also because parents said we don't want our children in school with a lot of Cantonese people because we are worried about how our children will be treated but also the dilution of our culture. Mm. And I think that mindset needs to change. If their children are going to live and work in Hong Kong and their children are going to escape poverty, there is no way to do it except through language acquisition. And one in four ethnic minorities today live in poverty. And that is shambolic and we've got to end it. Tell
0: me about the Zubin Foundation.
1: So In 2009, I was married. I had two wonderful children, Zubin, who was age three, and my daughter, Anya, who was aged 18 months. As I was wrapping up for work on a Friday, I got a call from my helper that my son, Zubin, wasn't feeling great. To um, cut a very long and um, painful story short, Zubin died on the Sunday. As a mother, you never come to terms with a child's death. Zubin was my first child. He is my first child, and he made me a better person. And his death killed me, and I became extraordinarily depressed. When he died, a friend of mine set up a trust, the Zubin Mitani Gidamal Foundation Trust, and people put funds in it. Many years later, my friend Kishore, who's the chairman of community business and has stood stood by my side for years. He's also a Hong Kong boy, a DBS boy. He said to me, I need to put this trust. We have to make it a charity and you've got to help me do it. So five years later, I set up the charity and he said, now we've got to spend the money. And I feel that if it wasn't for him, I would still be in this terribly dark room. The Zubin Foundation was set up to help those who suffer the most in Hong Kong. I think as a mother who lived when my son didn't, I have to make my life worthwhile and will speak for those communities who most need help. We chose ethnic minorities to begin with and so we are a think tank and we are a charity. I don't run the foundation, I don't have the same sort of strength anywhere near that same sort of strength as I did before, but I chair the foundation, which is run by a a wonderful team of people. The foundation is a think tank, which is where I play a role by helping to steer the organisation, with the aim of influencing leaders to make changes. And we're also a charity, which means we, we do projects. So in a nutshell, we work in the area of women and girls the most marginalized women. Secondly, we work on children. Again, we work on the most marginalized, so we work on kindergarten children. We also have worked recently on special needs. We've looked at all primary schools in Hong Kong that cater to English-speaking or non-Chinese-speaking kids, public and private, and looked at what they're doing and not doing for our special needs kids. We also work on youth. I feel quite strongly that the youth of today are the future. And we've gotten lots of things wrong with my generation and ethnic minorities. I really want to make sure that the government gets it right for our youth. And so we've got a program that's been kindly funded by ming Lao that looks at what 250 ethnic minority disadvantaged youth think. And we've got a program for the top 25 nurturing them and mentoring them. And I think along the whole ethnic minority spectrum, what we need is change And the way to influence change as we know from community business is to get to leaders and through an initiative called Diversity List, which we've gone out to all the minority communities and asked them to submit names, get self-nominations. People who self-nominate get screened and they get put on a list. And we put to the Hong Kong government since 2016 a list of Hong Kong's most amazing ethnic minorities. And we say to the government, please include them in government committees. And the rationale is quite simple. If we have problems in education, we have problems in employment. We have problems in access to social services. We have problems in our hospitals. And we ask the question, who's making decisions on government committees about these individuals? And we notice that less than 0.3% of members of government committees are Hong Kong's ethnic minorities. Well, therein lies part of the problem. And so if we can help the government by saying these people are amazing and they're willing to serve, then we've helped the government and we've also made these individuals visible. And that's extremely precious as an ethnic minority youth. And to have role models in Hong Kong who look like me, speak like me, have had the same family problems, have the same cultural nuances and have the same ambition and drive. And to be able to for a young person to say that person is just like me how do i reach them i've been really lucky to have christine lowe as my mentor um but she's not indian but she's been there for me and she's held my hand i think every young person needs a mentor my thanks to
0: Charlene matani talking there on her life her late son zubin and the Zubin Foundation. If you'd like to find out more about the Zubin Foundation, then it's very easy to find the website, www.zubinfoundation.org. Recent initiatives by the Foundation have included a helpline for ethnic minority women in need of support called Call Mirror. They also have food donation boxes for ethnic minority families affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.